0: In India, all this automation, expensive machines, is a big no-no. You've got to be someone crazy like me to actually go out there and get that. It's not a misconception, but we don't like to spend much on technology.
1: This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff. On today's show, we're visiting a new continent in our current season in which we're talking to people involved in the machining industry around the globe. Our guest is Mayank Patel, director of Mayank Brassfit in Jamnagar, India. Mayank's company produces brass fittings, primarily for tribal manufacturing and Parker Hannifin, both located in the United States. Mayank produces the majority of his parts on two expensive Buffalo transfer machines. This is in stark contrast to his competitors who use cheap but slow single spindle CNC lathes requiring considerable manpower. As a used machine tool dealer specializing in high production equipment, I've encountered plenty of fire damaged machines. An average fire costs a business $300,000 to $500,000 and six to eight weeks of lost production time. Installed on over 15,000 CNC machines, FireTrace protects shops running oil-based coolants by automatically detecting and suppressing fires within seconds. FireTrace systems are safe for people and machines because they use clean agents that leave no residue. The systems are compatible with all major machinery brands and can be installed within a few hours. For more details, go to www.firetrace.com/swarfcast. www.firetrace.com swarfcast. That's www. F-I-R-E-T-R-A-C-E dot com slash S-W-A-R-F C-A-S-T I'm honored to be with Mayank Patel, director of Mayank Brass Fit in Jamnagar, India. Welcome to the show, Mayank.
0: Thanks, Noah. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Yeah, I, it's, it's really good to catch up with you. I met Mayank what was it, two years ago? Something like that. We sold Mayank a Bufoli, uh, a secondhand Bufali rotary transfer machine. For those of you who are not familiar, well, I don't know if it's a rotary transfer machine. Maybe it's just like a trunnion transfer machine, but huge machine can make parts by the millions. And you are the only company in India using these machines, correct?
0: Uh, right now, there's one more company that is using this machine. It's just, it's uh, there's a brand new machine that's just been installed in December of last year.
1: Okay, but for a while, you were the only one using this machine. My understanding, from talking to you, the other manufacturers in India, it's like polar opposite. They're using single spindle CNC's that cost $20,000 equivalent. And um, so, you have two of these bufalis. How much did the new bufali you bought before you bought the one from us? How much did that cost?
0: So that was about 800,000 euros.
1: Right. Which back when you bought it was probably, I don't know, $1.2 million, $1.3 million.
0: Yeah, equal to that, yeah.
1: Wow. Incredible. Super machine. So now today we're going to talk about India What it's like to run a machining company in India, the different variations there are running a machining company in India. I think after talking to Mayank, his company is a bit unique. But India, one of the most important manufacturing companies on the globe, we thought it was really important to visit there. Let's get underway and learn a little bit more about you and your company real quick. And then we're going to talk about India. First, give me a little background about how you got into this business, what you studied. There was a little bit of a hereditary line with machining. So why don't you fill us in about that? So
0: I studied in a boarding school right from childhood, Uh, the independent uh, 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 self-applying of everything aspect of life. was naturally built in, right? And right from the age of six, I was shipped out to a boarding school. I spent 10 years there.
1: Is that pretty typical for a certain class of people in India?
0: Yes. Education, uh, there's lots of variants uh, on education in India. Uh, Like you have class by class and uh, you have different kinds of schools, different kinds of facilities that every school has. So you choose one which you can afford and which the parents can afford. And uh, those nine years that I spent uh, in the boarding school were the best nine years of my life, learning every day, right? And growing every day. From age six to 15? Yes,
1: wow. that is correct.
0: Then I was uh, in Bombay for two years uh, doing my undergraduation. Where were you born in India? In Jamnagar.
1: Jamnagar, okay.
0: Yeah. And then I went to London for about four years to complete my master's and I studied international business. So I'm a commerce guy who got into machining and uh, became sort of an engineer just by hands-on experience on the floor.
1: Okay. But you have manufacturing in your blood, correct? Yes. Give us the skinny on that.
0: Yeah, so my family run, used to run a big uh, conglomerate of uh, companies who used to manufacture a lot of types of brass. Uh, one company was manufacturing the brass rod and all the semis that go into machining, right? Uh, the other company was making electronic wiring and cabling accessories and uh, there were two other companies making hardware for furnitures, right? So right from the uh, raw material to finished parts everything was on the floor and I could actually get firsthand the feel of every step of a product coming into inception, going into the market. Right. So when I got back from UK and I wanted to join uh, the business, mm-hmm. the family was huge. There were a number of uh, cousins and uh, you know everybody running operations and uh, I was the eighth in line.
1: But you wanted to, you wanted to join the business.
0: I I definitely wanted to join the business, but not as a manufacturer, but as a, what do you say, some kind of value addition what I could bring to the table,
1: Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Because you had the business background, you had the international background.
0: Yeah, and uh, at that point, uh, there was very international sales. Uh, The business was more concentrated on serving the Indian domestic market. So uh, when I joined, uh, I figured that... uh, uh, they want much willing to go out there and explore what's uh, possible overseas, and that is the trend uh, that that still goes on in India. Uh, when when the fresh blood comes into the business, you have to toil for two three years and uh, learn the old ways, and then probably your new ways or your new uh, ideas they they start being considered. Okay. Right. And eventually, I decided that uh, you guys can the family can do what they're doing. I'm going to go out and uh, start a small machine
1: shop because they were sort of doing it the old way, and and you were you said, no, we can do much better than this. Is that yeah. is that about what happened?
0: Yeah, and my father was uh, the uh, the eldest one, and he was the one who was always uh, you know innovative, trying to get into newer markets. So he used to visit uh, the United States a lot. Uh, right, okay. uh, friends. There, so he had seen all these Davenport's, uh, all these Wickmans, and uh, you know all these big, uh, high-volume machining. Right. He always foresaw that market that you know that could be possible opportunities to enter that and you know uh, get those uh, those kind of uh, machines in India and uh, to somebody who could market the product. Right, uh, but the family was too busy to do that. And uh, getting into the U.S. market, as I can tell you by experience, it's, it's, it's not a piece of cake. No. There's, there's always uh, a lot of hard work, patience, and you have to keep chasing. So if, if you aren't willing to do that and if you aren't willing to put in the hours and patience into convincing customers to switch, you're not getting the business.
1: Okay. So your main product is to the United States. Do you mind if I say who you supply to or...? you want to just keep that no so you sell primarily to parker and to tribal manufacturing yeah, yeah. i mean yeah parker Hannifin, everybody knows that and the people in the in the screw machine parts world they they know tribal very well it's pretty impressive to me how do you get in there how do you tell them about your company and say hey i i'm different you should use me
0: uh, you won't believe me. I can say that I'm selling to them and I'm an approved vendor to them. It's it, it's taken me two and a half years precisely.
1: Two and a half years. It, it's
0: taken me two and a half years to get my first PO cut. Mm-hmm. You know? So it takes that long because it, these are huge operations, right? And there's a number of plants. Uh, there's always strategy that is changing. Give, they, they give us one package, then something else. And there's lots of... Uh, Time that uh, is involved in, uh, you know, cracking these uh, orders and business from them. But uh, yeah, and it, this, uh, this I started uh, discussing with Parker when uh, we first, uh, back in 2018, when uh, we just dismantled the machine in, in, in USA. Ah, uh, okay. I was getting additional capacity, and uh, uh, I could turn up the, the volumes, crank up the parts uh, at, at much lower cost. Were you already supplying to Tribal? Uh, no. Even that's the same case. I, 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 I've been trying to reach out since 2014, and uh, it's only been uh, six months that uh, we've been
1: uh, getting closer closer to cutting POs. And, uh, when you bought the first Bufoli, who were you supplying? I mean, that machine is to make gazillions of parts. I mean, you can't buy that machine unless you have a customer, right?
0: Right. So before all these OEMs we got into, we were selling to second tier distributors, right? In, in Kansas City, in Michigan, who were off the shelf uh, uh, selling to replacement markets, not to OEMs, like the plumbing industry. The, the main reason to buy the first Boofelet was that we could machine lead free parts on, on the Boofelet. Right. We were serving a very big plumbing uh, second tier distributor back then. Right. And we were machining lead-free, uh, the standard free machining brass back in 2010.
1: And Jamnagar, that's the brass capital of India, correct? Yep. And before you, nobody was manufacturing with lead-free brass, correct? Mm, correct. So what did you have to do to do the lead-free brass? You, they didn't even have it in the country, did they?
0: Uh, No, it was unheard of. Once you
1: take lead out of brass, it is uh, uh, very difficult to machine. And this was for plumbing, right? So you don't have the lead pipes? Okay. Yeah. Uh, We have all iron pipes in India. That's one reason why you can't drink the water? One of the reasons?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So uh, the customer wanted to move everything that we were doing in standard free machining brass to lead free, 100%. So there weren't, uh, there wasn't much that we could use to even sample parts. So I had to fly in sample bars from Italy to try and run some parts on our machines to see how different it was, wow. see how difficult it was, see how the tools behaved, see what maybe need- we needed to change on the tools, uh, on the power of the machine, uh, what kind of coolant we had to use.
1: And, uh, that's how we did sampling. So that couldn't, that, that was not cheap, I'm sure yeah it wasn't did everybody say you're nuts that you're doing this why why are you trying to get into this
0: the people in my shop they were all mechanics and uh, they, they the educated mechanics right they were just uh, hands-on mechanics who have been who had 20 years experience on the floor you know making tools running the machines, setting up the machines they told me that you are going to waste a lot of money getting the material from them, which is not going to cut. We aren't even going to be able to saw it, let alone machining, drilling, turning, right? Uh, So I said if uh, the Italians and if they put it into law, right? So there has to be a reason which allows them to put it there because it can be done. Sure. If we aren't going to do it, uh, there was a competitor in India right across the road, right? Selling to the same customer. He's going to do it. Right. So either we do it or we lose a little bit of money trying to do it, and or else we get knocked out of the market.
1: Okay. So you're making parts for the plumbing industry. Do you have any of those parts you can show us real quick? Yep. For the Instagram and.
0: These are plumbing uh, parts for plumbing applications. Nice. Uh, these are compression elbows. Uh, these are machined from a profile bar, as you see. You have an octagon in the threshold and you have a rectangle on the top so you machine two ways similarly the same octagon is used to machine a three-way t and
1: and that's that is a perfect rotary transfer machine part because you can do so many different so many different parts with the cnc tools that come in from different ways yeah
0: yeah and typically we'd machine this is lead free this is c27450 Right. We machine this part in about uh, three and a half to four seconds flat. Wow. Right. So each part is machined accurately, precisely, and uh, to the print in three and a half to four seconds max.
1: What kind of tolerance? Uh, the tolerances aren't
0: very close on plumbing applications. Uh, it's uh, 50 microns to 60 microns plus or minus. Okay uh so we are pretty okay on those uh, uh usually in the in the plumbing sector or when we're machining uh, high volume commodity items uh, tolerances are pretty uh, not so very close right it's it's about the volume and the cost per piece how you uh, get it as low as you can right so these are just a few shapes uh, that we machine uh, this is a f1960 Fitting. This is from what kind of brass? Eco-brass. Okay. So that's 75% copper, 3% uh, tin in it, and the rest is uh, zinc, right? So this is the one that Chase and Mitsubishi had a patent on until last year. So we couldn't enter these markets and we were locked out of it, right? But now it's open and we can machine eco
1: Interesting. Right?
0: So there's various sizes that we machine in eco-brass. Again, these are all... Uh, perfect parts for the transfer machine for the bootly
1: They look really nice. great finish.
0: This part is about uh, anywhere from one million to two million pieces
1: right and how, what's your what's your cycle time on that? Uh,
0: three point nine to four seconds on on these okay. Uh, there's, there's one more size to this, nothing changes. This uh, one, the bar side remains the same. It's just the OD and the ID on the other side changes.
1: How big is it? What's the, the OD and the ID on it for the people that can't see it?
0: It's, uh, the bar is three quarters of an inch and okay. uh, the ID is about 10 millimeters. And uh, this side, the OD, ID is about uh, 16
1: millimeters. And so your competitors are making Something similar, maybe, I don't know if they're making the leadless brass or not, but are your competitors making the leadless parts as well now? Uh,
0: yes, uh, uh, they are making the leadless parts. Uh, but again, uh, uh, there's lots of uh, variants on the leadless brass. If you're selling to an OEM, the leadless brass is, is of a higher, uh, what do you say? Quality? You know, a richer, a richer alloy. Right? you'd have uh, 63% copper. Uh, the, the, if you're selling to a second tier distributor, the alloy goes even more cheaper, right? And if you're selling to a very uh, high level OEM, they're using eco brass. Uh, okay. There's lots of variation on the pricing on the quality of the product and where lead-free is concerned.
1: Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. Okay, so you were telling me before about uh, your competitors, you say your competitors are selling to Eaton? Yes. Okay, now what kind of machines are they using? Uh,
0: so they're all using, uh, what do you say, single spindle CNC lates, mm-hmm. where you only, uh, let's say, if you're making uh, this part, particular mm-hmm. part, right? You can machine everything on the OD, right? But you have to part off from this end, and whatever, uh, the detailing on the inside has to be put onto a second machine.
1: Wow, so two machines, one machine with the bar and then a chucker?
0: Yeah, you can't backwork the part, right? So that's the limitation, and it's a single spindle machine, so your output, uh, the cycle time is anywhere between uh, a minute or so, right? A
1: minute or so, and is that for each machine? yes so and then between the machines there is an actual person passing it from one machine to the other or do they have some kind of conveyor belt or
0: how they do it is they'll cut the blank of this part right from the bar put it on one machine finish the operation then that goes on to a secondary operation machine so whole basket will go on to the next machine Mm-hmm. Right, And it's set up as the, once uh, a day later. So once the uh, the first part of the machining is finished, then it goes on to the second machine to complete the part.
1: And is there uh, one person running each machine?
0: Yes, because once you cut the bar, you have to manually put it in the machine, manually take it off the machine once the machining is finished. Then on the second machine as well, you manually put the part inside the machine, inside the chucker, and then take it off once it's finished.
1: So, how many machines would be in a in one of these competitors of yours?
0: Anywhere from twenty machines uh, to, let's say, even like fifty machines.
1: Okay, and so each machine would be fifth, would be one person. So you'd have about fifty people running fifty machines.
0: Yeah, that's just one shift. If you're running, and on those machines, if you don't run twenty four hours, you don't make enough parts to finish your orders. So you have to run those machines twenty four hours, six days a week.
1: Okay. So how much do you run your machine and how many people do you need?
0: So I have 10 of those single spindle machines. We run those 24 hours because whatever parts we put on those, also we need to finish up quickly. Anything above 5,000 parts, we will put it on the buffly, right? Even if it is 8,000, 10,000, we know we finish it in 10 hours, 8 hours,
1: right? So, uh, we run the Boofley about uh, 20 hours a day. So one machine, one part that would be one minute cycle time on theirs would be uh, like three and a half seconds on yours. Or is it two minutes to three and a half seconds?
0: Two minutes to uh, three and uh, four seconds.
1: Two minutes on one shop and four seconds on yours. That's incredible. So you must be killing them then. I mean, besides having to pay for the machines... I mean, it's a totally unfair advantage, right? Does that make you be leading the competition? Uh,
0: the thing is, uh, uh, you have to think out of the box here, right? If if, if, if everybody's, right? if if you are to sustain and if you are to survive, right? If you are to go, go ahead, sustaining, surviving, and then going ahead, right? You've got to do something different that nobody here is doing. To be able to, you know, let's say call up a customer in US and say, okay, I can give you the same quality, I can give you the same, uh, you know, tolerances, and I can give you the same quantity you need, right? And uh, technology-wise, I have this equipment yeah. that will produce yeah. the card in four seconds, flat out.
1: And you only need two people. You, you're you there, How? what's your, what is your normal workday?
0: Uh, my normal workday ranges from
1: anywhere between 10 hours to 15 hours on the shop. <laughs> Oh wow! Well, so you still work your ass off, and then you have one other guy who yeah. then goes in. Why do you work so many hours?
0: I like a challenge, and making these parts is a challenge every single day,
1: right? And uh, because you're constantly you're constantly changing between the parts, is that why it's a challenge?
0: And no, the equipment also uh, every day. I mean, you get. Some, there's something new happening on the machine or there's some new error on the machine that you fix, right? And every day is a learning curve, right? So I like, uh, if, if I've put in so much money, right, I, I, I like to learn as to where the problems are and try to fix those problems. And to learn from them so that uh, we can you know be in a better position the next time to discuss it with any supplier probably
1: so okay right? for the equipment. L- i'm sorry i didn't mean to cut you off
0: uh, no problem i'm saying i like to be on the floor uh, I, I i'm very much less in the office uh, you'll find me on the floor more often than i'd be on my chair in the office
1: i got you all right let's just talk let's talk india a couple couple things stereotypes misconceptions culture Is engineering a popular field for people to go in?
0: Yes, it is a very popular field for kids to go in. Uh, There's lots of engineering schools and colleges and universities here. Uh, And some of the big engineering companies who are into uh, a lot of uh, aspects of uh, business where construction is concerned, uh, all other kinds of equipment and the heavy earth-moving stuff is concerned. Those companies spend heavily on having their own educational institutes to train people in various aspects of their business. So they can retain those people, employ those people directly from uh, the educational institute to their, uh, you know, offices and uh, uh, operations. So there's lots of uh, opportunities for engineering in India.
1: And there are there are lots of people that want to work in a factory in India. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But the problem you were telling me before, the problem is back to those CNC lathes with two people, one person on each machine. There's a lot of variables that happens with a person versus just automation.
0: Yes, absolutely. So uh, the biggest variation is I I have, let's say I have 10 machines on the floor. I have 10 people working on the same part. At the end of the day, he is manually putting the part in and manually taking the part out, right? So the machine cycle time becomes the only fixed thing, right? So if it takes too long to put the part in, if it takes too long to take it out, right? If I'm monitoring who's making the most parts, it eventually, the machine is out of the picture. It's the human who is there, who is going to decide how much my machine output is, right? So that's that's my biggest variable there. Right? So at the end of the day, no matter what machine it is, no matter how expensive that machine is, a human factor has come into play bigger than the actual capability of the machine. Right? So at the end of the day, I am reliant on mm-hmm. labor it's variable, so I cannot guarantee myself the output of those machines.
1: What is the work ethic compared to, say, Europe? I mean, you don't obviously you haven't run a factory in Europe, but when the, the people from Buffalo came to install the machine you noticed you made various observations about them
0: so uh, to start with uh, i've not run any operations in europe or something but i've been to a few factories uh, when we were running off the first machine in italy there was a, there were a few machines being built right besides our machines and we were there for two three weeks and every single day there was uh, progress on the machine there were new things being added to the machine and there was significant development on the machine building in those, uh, three weeks. And it's not like they put in long hours to finish that job, right? It was eight, uh, it was seven to five and they would be gone, you know, and uh, everything would just work like clockwork.
1: You just, so they were, they were much more organized and they were more focused.
0: Yes and there was a log that what had to be done the day and uh, those guys saw that it was finished on that particular day and not being put to another day right which is uh, very different uh, to how it is in India right uh, and I wouldn't hesitate to say that being an Indian the, the, the reason why it's hard to put up uh, with uh, you know being on time being on schedule right because uh, we say cheap labor Right, it's only we count it only as cheap because we count it in the way that we pay them. Yes, ninety-five percent of people don't account for the delays it causes, the what do you say, the rejection ratios it causes, and uh, eventually uh, a promise to a customer is not fulfilled. Right, so
1: that is cost. How much does somebody make uh, a machinist that's running one of these single spindle machines? Um, I know it's really difficult to draw. A parallel because things are cheaper in India.
0: So let's say he would make
1: uh, about less than $200 a month. $200 a month, okay. Less than. Less than $200 a month for, you know, a, a typical machinist, somebody that's been there a little while. Yeah. Okay, and so if you make less than $200 a month in rupees, what kind of, what does that buy you? I mean, how much is, how much is food? How much is... Housing. I mean, to be honest, I really don't know that much about what it's like to live there. I'm sure there's just so many different standards of living.
0: Oh, yes. Uh, So how how the culture is here in India, it is more of a family culture, right? So the kids still live with parents. And even I live with my parents. And my grandparents also live with us.
1: Okay, so that saves money.
0: So you have a family home which has been passed on from generations to generations and if you don't have a family home, right, you are renting it out so there are, uh, the whole family is working, right, so each one contributes towards how you live and then there are various standards of living, how much you can afford, you have uh, a bigger house, you have a bigger car, you have, so that way, right, so you don't have to have uh, your own housing, you don't have to have your own car, it's all, you know, a uh, uh, family. But now there are also uh, nuclear families where it's just, uh, the, let's say a machinist, he's living on his own, right? And he's a, a programmer, of, he, he programs all the machines, sets up all the machines. So he makes about, uh, let's say about uh, six, $700 a month.
1: Okay, so right? this is like a, a manager, middle manager? No. Or he, a skilled, more skilled worker?
0: Yeah, more skilled and he would be the one who's setting up the machines.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The guy who's making less than $200, he's an operator, right? So he's just going to run the machine, right? He doesn't have to do any tool changes on the machine, right? He will check, keep checking the parts uh, during uh, uh, the production runs. And this guy will monitor all the operations and set up parts, changeovers and all that stuff. So that he, he will make a good amount of money, right? So he's qualified, he's educated, he has a, uh, what do you say, a, a degree or something mm-hmm. in machining, and mechanical background. Whereas the guys who are making less than uh, $200, they aren't the skilled laborers. Right. Uh, teach them how to operate the machine, uh, load the machine, unload the part, and start the cycle.
1: Could one of them work their way up the ladder? Oh, yes. I mean, is that common for for them to go to engineering school later? Or...
0: So they don't go to engineering school later. Uh, if we see someone as uh, uh, who has the capability to go up the ladder, right we will put him alongside the guy who is setting up the parts mm-hmm. so he can at least uh, set up the tools take the offsets right uh, see how the programming works right and uh, we in-house also we have uh, sometimes we have uh, these weekly uh, uh twice uh, in two weeks we have uh, guys who are willing to learn programming we have a senior programmer giving them notes and, you know, making, uh, getting them up, up, up the ladder. And uh, so eventually we don't have to go out and, uh, you know, uh, pay much higher. We can scale these guys up and, you know, uh, get them to uh, be more.
1: So a t- a somebody that's making $200 one day, if they're bright and they work hard, they could make 800.
0: Yeah. Uh, yes, absolutely. Okay. This business is always growing. There's no limitation to this. Right. So there's always opportunity there itself. You know, you don't need to look outside. Of course, there is opportunity outside as well, right? So people also look for better opportunities where they get paid better, which is a natural course. So
1: how many employees do you have? Just like four or five?
0: Uh, no, on the briefly side of it, four or five. Right. Uh, the others, we have those 10, uh, ten single swindle lates. Right.
1: 10 people for that.
0: We have five people running two machines each. Right. Because mm-hmm. we feed the and we use a bar puller on the machine. We don't cut the blanks.
1: Okay. Right. Yeah. And uh,
0: then we also have those uh, mechanical manual operated machines to work the parts uh, that don't require CNC operations.
1: Just a few stereotypes and misconceptions and well, maybe they're misconceptions. I don't know. Uh, Indian people, they're known to be hard nosed negotiators. Now, I'm assuming this depends on where you are in India. I mean, the culture probably shifts. and But, I mean, this is the stereotype. Shed a little light on that. This is something I've been curious about. Trying to sell machines to, to yes. Indian people, it's, it's not easy. Yeah, that is
0: exactly where I'm coming at. So, in India, right, so all this uh, automation and, uh, what do you say, expensive machines is a big no-no. <laughs> You've got to be someone crazy like me to actually go out there and uh, you know get that. It's not a misconception, but we don't like to spend much on technology.
1: Hmm.
0: We want it, but we don't want to spend too much on it. <laughs> I, I get I get told off when when I spend a million dollars on a transfer machine.
1: They think you're crazy.
0: So I could get fifty machines, fifty of those single spin laths on my floor instead of one machine. So why, why would I go and spend a million dollars on some machine when I could have 50 of those doing my job for me? Right? Mm-hmm. So 50 machines, 50 different setups, 50 different operators, 50 different outputs, same part, if you run on 50 machines, you get different tolerances. Right. So that is all pictured in.
1: Well, so people tell me, I, I've heard, maybe I've heard this from Indian people, or maybe I've heard this from people that have heard this from Indian people. People say, oh, you're you're on the street and you wanna buy a carton of eggs and one person says $1 equivalent and the other person says $10 equivalent and then you go back and forth until finally somebody wins. Is this true?
0: Yes, absolutely it is true. Okay. So there's negotiations on every aspect of, uh, purchase or sale. It's not just machines. It's not just, uh, uh, what do you say? Your machine tools or your materials or anything. It's, it's, it's everywhere.
1: Does that annoy you or do you like it? Uh,
0: to some point, yes. It annoys me because if you are to buy it, right, it's the same. You, you got to decide what quality you want to buy, right? There's a ton of options available. You could go to China, you could go to, uh, I, I'd speak on the machining, on the machine tool industry. So you could go to China, you could go to Taiwan, right? You could go any place you like, right? At the end of the day, you got to decide you want a machine that lasts 50 years uh, or a machine that lasts uh, two years, three years, four years. And
1: yeah. Are you optimistic about India advancing their technology, prospering? at you know upping their standard of living if you talk to demographics experts they say well india the population is exploding and so they're going to have this advantage over china and you know united states is okay because our population growth is is sort of stable Um, but europe is in trouble china's in trouble but india they have this huge advantage but clearly the cultural advantage sounds like things are advancing slowly. So what, what do you see? Do you, do you see uh big changes and quickly? Uh,
0: change is always slow. When you talk about a nation of 1.3 billion
1: people, <laughs>
0: change won't happen. Overnight.
1: Change won't happen overnight. You said?
0: Yes. I mean, it, it's uh, the current prime minister. He's trying to change the country from what it was uh, for the last 40, 50 years. And uh, he's taking good uh, steps to making sure that uh, there is transformation. And India in itself is a huge market. You know, mm-hmm. the biggest automakers, uh, the biggest uh, car manufacturing companies. But
1: you don't sell to India very much. That's a small part of your business.
0: And that's, I mean, we don't sell at all. Okay. Right, uh, because brass is pretty unorganized in India. Right, because you have to sell... Everyone's looking for cheap product. Mm-hmm. Right, and quality is not a big concern. The pricing is, right? So where do you price... How do you get your price down?
1: But if you're... But like Tata Motors, don't they have high-quality requirements? Uh, yeah, but they don't use much of brass. What's one of the most interesting things you learned in the last seven days? Ah... So we were given a part to machine in
0: stainless steel, which I had never machined before, and it was a big opportunity to, you know, diversify something from brass to, you know, machining uh-huh. something else, not relying on them. And uh, we did that successfully, and was a bit of a complicated part. And we submitted those samples, and uh, yeah, we we're awaiting the output of it. So, yeah, I'm hoping it goes through.
1: If people are interested in uh, learning more about your company where should they go do you guys have a website
0: uh it's being put up right now uh you can contact me on my email address okay it's my com, and i can share my cell phone number
1: or you can you could contact us too and maybe we could put you in touch
0: thank you Noah. it's always a pleasure to speak with you and thank you for giving me this opportunity to be on your show
1: From today's machining world, this is a Swarfcast production. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to see extended video interviews and join our mailing list. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our audio engineer is Bill Steffi. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information on todaysmachiningworld.com.